make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Welcome, welcome, everybody. I'm Kaya Alexander. I'm host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. I'm here today with our special guest, Ira Bear. Ira, what's going on? You tell me. <laughs> I, I hear I'm you. here with you. <laughs> I hear you've written some stuff. You've produced some stuff. I just want to let folks know um, what you've worked on a little bit. So let's touch on a few of your credits. You are known for your work on Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, The Next Generation, the 4400, which is uh, where my friend Richard Cahan, I guess, met you, uh, and then Crash and also Outlander, some really epic shows. I'm a big fan of many of these shows. And uh, some of them were even fun to do. Well, what, um, are you doing, what are you doing right now? I just finished, well, not just, but recently finished up on a show called Beacon 23. Yes. Where... Uh, Lord only knows when that's going to be released, supposedly next summer, hopefully. And uh, Lena Headey is the star from Game of Thrones. And it's about a lighthouse in space. And so that's what I've done last. Yeah, very cool. Um, tell, tell me about how you met Richard. Uh, Richard Cahan. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I love him to bits. Uh, and he cites you as one of his mentors, really loves you. How'd you guys meet? Well, we were... 4,400... Uh, you know, I'm not going to go into the to the, to the synopsis of the show, but, but 4,400 people disappeared, and 4,400 people come back, and it's all being investigated. And the... Uh, powers that be kept saying, you know, you have to keep the audience caught up in what's going on. So every time you have a scene between the two leads, no matter what they're talking about, they should get into theories about what this all means and why these people came back. And it's like, well, that's kind of lame to have to do that in the middle of scenes that are about something else. And so suddenly they stop and start theorizing they said but theory is good theory is good theory is good you got to keep the audience on that kind of path so finally sitting around in the writer's room i said what we're going to do is we're going to create the goddamn theory room and <laughs> then there'll be a place where they can go and they can theorize all they want and one of the other executive producers a non-writing executive producer said, you can't do that. It's like a slap in the face 
of, of the network. And it's like, you're making fun of them. And I said, they're going to love it. You know, they are going to love it. It's like, we took their note in Excelsius. So um, we came up with this theory room where the rubber meets the road. And uh, we created this character named Marco, who would be the head of the theory room and would be the only person in the theory room we can afford to have speak. <laughs> um, and uh, we went about casting it. And because it was a minor role at the time, we had to cast it up in Vancouver where we were shooting, okay. um, which I try to avoid as much as possible, but we had to do it. So one of the people who came in was this guy named Richard Cahan. And his audition reminded me at the time, the way he, he theorized was very much like Quentin Tarantino, uh, who he can't help lecturing you when he talks to you. you know? <laughs> it's like you, you want to listen to him and you want to kill him at the same time. Oh, um, so I just thought he was really kind of great. So we hired him and he did a role or two. And then I guess it was the next season we were having a, a dinner up in Vancouver with some of the cast. And for some reason, Richard was there, which was kind of odd since at that point he hadn't really become, uh, you know, a semi-regular as much. Anyway, so he was, I, I didn't know him. I had never really talked to him. But somehow we were sitting next to each other with two of the younger stars of the show. And as we were eating dinner, the two stars of the show were giving Richard the most ridiculously tough time because he was not a series regular. And why was he at the table? And they were really busting his chops. Like for real? Like they weren't. Well, in a fun way, you know, in a in a nice way. But it was starting to annoy me a little bit. <laughs> and. I was amazed how it just, you know, I would have reacted in a very different way, but Richard was very cool about it and, and took it all in stride and didn't seem to care and knew what was going on, but kind of joked it off. And right there at that table, I suddenly looked at this guy and said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this guy. I'm going to do something for this guy. I'm going to help him um, just because how we handled the situation and that's really what did it i mean if not for that dinner i don't know if uh we would have become buddies that's but, amazing so you saw his grace in yeah. that moment it sounds like he does carry a lot of grace that's so interesting it seems like you saw his character too so you got a window into who he is as a person um it sounds like you had a good instinct about him too yeah so you know and you know he's he's close friends with one of those two guys you know it's not like it became a thing but it just at the moment i found it like guys this is so not cool you know it's like we get it we know where you are in the pecking order who gives a shit really you it's know of like you know the tutor court or something <laughs> yeah so but that's how it all happened so now you know that's now the story about well, I, I think it's really cool that you love mentoring because it's kind of rare in this industry. And I'm curious what you look for in young writers and others who are coming up through the ranks, kind of tagging on that last story. Well, you know, I, I, I've always had a propensity for interesting people, people that other people might not 
be as fond of. Uh, I like I like oddball people, uh, intelligent oddball people, and I can I can put up with with you know uh, personalities who are not only not always in a state of grace who can rub people the wrong way, but if they're talented, if they have a unique viewpoint, you know, I can dance with them. And, and so, I mean, the basic thing is, you know, I had a situation when I was younger where I thought I had a mentor and it kind of went south, you know, which was probably for the best because otherwise I'd be some, I'd be teaching at some university and writing plays on the side because it was all about playwriting. And I got, you know, I literally like closed the iron door on my mentor and just like shut him out of uh, my life uh, and went on and decided to move to Los Angeles ultimately. Um, and I said, you know, if I'm ever in that situation where I can help someone who I think is deserving of help, um, I'll do it. You know, that's easy. That 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 kind of stuff. I find, you know, you don't have to work at that. You know, that that's the easy part. I wish I got along with the. I get along very well with people that I work with. The people I don't get along with is the people I work for. And that, kids, if you're listening, don't do that. You can help it. <laughs> you know I'm always guilty of insubordination with like every job I've had that's why I have my own business now <laughs> well I I can hear that <laughs> hey I'd love to um hear about your writing process because you've written so so much television on some legendary shows would you take us um inside your creative process your writing process well for uh most of the most of the years it's only in the last decade, less than a decade, I used to write longhand. I mean, when I was doing a show, I was on a show called Fame, which is where I made my bones in the business. That's how long ago. Um, and in the third year or the last year of the show, um, my third year on the show, last year of the show, they got everyone computers and mine stayed in the box for the entire season. I would not let them open it. I don't want to see it. I'm a Luddite. Um, and uh, I continued to write longhand. I like the messiness of it. No one can read my handwriting. It's like, it looks like, you know, the work of the Unabomber. It's, it's uh, <laughs> quite frustrating half the time. I can't read what I've written. Um, but I thought that was great because it's like you're sculpting it. It starts out as a mess and then you're forced to rewrite just so you can read the damn thing and then yep. it gets better and better and better on a computer everything looks perfect you know you, have, you really have to read it and think about it to go this sucks you know because it just looks so clean and it looks like you know all the margins right and as you know it's all spelled correctly um so so that's really uh but but you know in the last couple of years i finally you know, force myself to join the human race a little bit and 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 uh, and use a computer. Though things go wrong a lot, you know, <laughs> and and 
Richard is one of the people I call and say, what the, we were just on the phone a few days ago, uh, trying to figure stuff out that, you know, anything I touch, uh, if it's mechanical tends to go belly up. When... I'm going to remember that he's great for tech support. I'm he's, call. he's, he's, <laughs> but I have people who could barely string two words together who are better tech support than me. So it's, <laughs> I, I forced them to become tech support, you know, by my complaining and by my, you know, batting my eyes and looking, you know, so destroyed. We, we have this in common, actually. I wrote my first novel longhand in pen, actually. I think I was so afraid that I wouldn't be able to finish the novel that I was like, all right, I'm going to write the whole thing longhand in pen. And if I get boxed into a corner, I got to imagine my way out because there is no going back. And it ended up being like, you know, I don't know, 30 legal pads. And then it was, you know, then it transcribed. And then eventually I had to transcribe it into the computer. And that was what, that's how I learned to type was transcribing that fucking book. <laughs> yeah. Well, often what I still do, even using the typewriter, if I have a scene that I know is going to be a complicated scene, that's going to take a lot of thought and a lot of redoing it. I start with the with the yellow pad, you know, and I'll I'll wrestle with it on the yellow pad and get something down at least that, you know, makes some kind of sense to me. And then if I can still understand what I've written, then I I, I put it into the computer. But but there's something I just I find much more freeing to just sit there and not worry about what's on a screen, you know. I love screens. I watch tons of films on screens and I, uh, but, but enough is enough, you know, in the creative process, I, 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 I don't like, um, technology to be a part of it, to be honest. So I, I got it. I so get it. And we've just spent so much time in front of the screens and I've been going back to, uh, writing with a pen cause I really miss it. And it's a different connection of ideas for me i feel like there's less pressure it's just less precious when it's on a you know a legal pad or something it just feels like i can be a mess and um i've noticed that when i can be a mess the writing is just a lot more alive if i feel like it has to be you know tightened up and perfect and stuff i, I just feel less free about it i lose my feral nature you know to run barefoot in the wilderness through whatever i'm working on exactly i mean that's the thing sometimes i'm sitting at the computer and it just feels like to to put those sentences down those words down it, it looks so clean that it has to be good but with mm -hmm. a pad you can just first thought best thought yeah. last, whatever you just you just like well you know and and i don't know i i it's what i do it's what i've always done and that's that's my uh that's my comfort zone what i'm also what i've also done a lot of um once i got up the ladder you know and started to have like actual production you know producer uh uh you know things i had a, i just had to cover as producer i i wrote with people you know i would i would write scripts because you know you can't be precious about a tv script you know when you're on that train baby that train is going and you got to get it done and you can't 
you can't just sit around and wait for the muse to strike. You know, you gotta you gotta produce constantly pages, pages, pages. So I would write with someone, and I never sit at the type. I never sit at the computer. <laughs> you know, uh, but I'm pacing around the room, and I'm 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 you know, I go through these fugue states where um, I can just like knock off the scene, like. And I never remember what I'm saying. If you if you said, what did you say just like two minutes ago? It's like, don't ask me. I'm just like, I'm just translating what's ever in my head, man. It's just, it's transmitting it. Um, so I've done that a lot. And, and in TV, at least, where time is of the essence and you can't afford to have like a bad day where you don't feel like writing. When I'm in a room with someone I don't know if it's competitive or or what, or just the teamwork of it. I like um, you get it done. You just get it done. You know, you're not sitting there thinking about you know the mortgage or you got to pay bills or the kid is sick or what. You, you just don't have time for you know. I got to take the car in. No, no, you're gonna get those pages out and and uh, you know on 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 stuff like deep space where we did 26 episodes a season in 10 months 26 yeah i mean i mean i would be an artist was so incredible <laughs> you know that you, you just you just had to keep it going you just had to keep it going so you do that momentum that's amazing tell, tell us about working on deep space nine i'm curious how also you wear your different hats writer producer now you know ep and how you have come up through the ranks like i guess the question is really like you know what do you love the most what do i love the most yeah. uh what do i love the most well i love casting i love hiring actors oh, I um when i was a on the first show i ever did which lasted all of 10 weeks uh i got to see them paint my name on a parking space at 20th Century Fox, which was one of the great moments of my life. And then 10 weeks later, I happened to be walking <laughs> in <laughs> through the parking lot. And I got talk about the hand of God, just as the guy is kneeling there painting out my name. It was like, wow, I could not, you cannot write that. Oh, uh, but in my first show, as the lowliest guy, you know, never having been on a show before, the first casting session, the executive producers walk in and they see me sitting there in the casting room. They go, get the hell out. What the fuck's the matter with you? You're not. I said, you're going to want me in here. You're going to want me in here. And luckily, I had been in the weeks that we'd been leading up to this, um, hanging out with the casting people, you know, going in and talking to them about things. So they knew my Rolodex head for casting. And they said, you know, hold, slow your roll, you know, let him, it, it might not be a bad idea just to have him in the room. Um, so from the very beginning, I was always in casting. I love casting. I think actors, Austin Wells said it, and I think he's not wrong that at the end of the day, the actors are the most important part. Yes, you need the script, nothing happens without a script, but the actors sell it, the actors make you believe it, the actors make it come to life. And, you know, um, 
I value actors. I'm even friends with actors. And that's not an easy thing always to be. Um, and uh, so if you ask me what my favorite part of it is, I mean, that's probably one of them. Sitting in the editing room is probably one of them. Um, uh, you know, writing is just what I do, you know, and I know, you know, I've always been, I've often been offered jobs where people would say, well, the the guy who, the, the showrunner, you know, needs someone who could run the room because they want to be in editing. And I'm thinking, you, sir, or you, lady, you, you people, cowards, because any, you know, going in editing, that's a vacation, baby. That's easy. <laughs> You know, everything is easy compared to the writing, right? Mm -hmm. That's where the reality lives. You know, everything else is like, yeah, yeah, I could sit there with the editor there and go, hey, you know, go back to that other take and let's see if we can. Yeah, great. Okay, cool. But but that's not, that's, that's fun. That's not work. It's work for them, for the editor, for you, you you're sitting there and, and, and being creative, you know? creative without the pressure of people knowing that it's it's you <laughs> you know when 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 you're running a show whoever writes the script the uh, the network only cares about the showrunner you know they they get it the good and the bad you know you can't go well you know my my staff is letting me down or my staff is great they don't they don't want to hear it really it's like what have you done for us lately so i don't even know if i've answered your question I don't no, know what the question was. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm rambling through our process here. As I oh, think. Deep Space Nine. You asked me about yeah, Deep Space I Nine. To know more about Deep Space Nine and your journey in that show. Well, you know, I had done a season on Next Generation. I, well, I was offered to go on season two of Next Generation. Had a meeting with Maurice Curley, who was running a show at the Paramount Commissary. And he told me what it was like to be in the show, on the show. And I said, no, right there. And the, I didn't even talk to my agent. I said, I'm not doing it. You know, it, it sounded like hell. You know, Roddenberry's lawyer was going through writer's desks and looking for signs of, of, of not being faithful to the, to the Roddenberry. I, I mean, it was so, you couldn't go down to the set. If you were a writer, you weren't allowed to talk to actors. This, that, the other thing. I said, screw it. I'm not doing it. So then season three came along and Michael Piller, who I knew had taken over uh, the ship, Maurice had left. Another guy came for nine weeks. He left. Michael was on the show. I knew Michael. Michael asked me if I wanted to come on the show. Two of the writers who I worked with on Fame was now on the show. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Uh, I had a couple of interesting run-ins with gene nice guy but we didn't agree on a lot of things and i quit at the end of the year uh they offered me a two-year pay or play deal back in the day when that was a real thing you know two seasons you're going to get paid for it even if you leave we're going to pay and and rick berman told my agents ira bear will never say no to this deal and i told my agent tell rick i say no uh, and I thought that was it for Star Trek. I went off, I wrote a feature for Harrison Ford and Joel Silver. Uh, I spent the year plus doing that. Um, 
flying in the Warner Brothers jet to Jackson Hole to, to, to meet with Harrison. I thought I had made it, baby. This is it. I'm in the private jet with all the execs. It can't get better than this. You know, a year and a half, the day that Harrison Ford says, yes, this is it. This is the movie I want to do. They fire me and bring on another writer. Yeah, and classic. he quits the project after the after two rewrites, and that's the end of that. So all through that, Michael Pillar is taking me to Dodger games and telling me he's going to do a new show. They're doing a new show called Deep Space Nine, and it's going to reflect my sensibilities more than TNG. Because I used to call TNG the Connecticut of Star Trek. It's white and clean and, and not my thing. Um, and he said, this is going to be darker and it's going to be, you're going to, and, and he said to me at the ball game, he said, and if you come back, if you come back, this is a show like I just walked out on and he's asking me to come back, which was kind of nice of him. He said, if you come back after two years, I'm giving you the show and you'll run the show for the last five years. Wow. It's a seven year commitment, they figure. Um, so first I said, no, then I said, you know, um, I talked to my wife, I talked to my sister, who was a Star Trek fan. Anyway, so then I said, yes, uh, I'll do it. I was amazed that Rick Berman would have me back. Um, so, you know, it started out, uh, it had great things in the pilot, but they didn't know what the hell to do with it. And it was, we were doing episodes that could have been done with, uh, you know, done on TNG, you know, it didn't have a, a real imprint of, of this new series. So it was the t first season was very, very tough in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, but we ended off with two good episodes, two really good episodes. And we had two week vacation. We had a two week vacation before starting the second season. So I'm up in Santa Barbara with my wife, Four days in, I get a call from Michael Pillar. Forget it. We can't do two weeks. It's one week, and then I need you back. Oh, my God. And, you know, I got a baby. I got, you know, we're here. You know, you got to come back. Got to come back. I'm coming back for my vacation. Got to come back. Oh, I said, okay. He goes, we're going to open up the second season with a three-episode arc something that's never been done in the franchise. It's going to be three episodes, not two, and it's going to be a continuing story. And just like that, you know, everything kind of hit me. And suddenly I realized the potential of what the show could be. And I just decided that, you know, get through the second season, which by the middle of the second season, Michael was very nice to start to, not completely move away, but he started to 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 let me uh, kind of run the writers' room more, and uh, that's when we decided about the Dominion, and basically that's when we decided that you know without telling anyone we were going to make it a serialized show, mm. and then it just kind of burst open, and suddenly it was like this is going to be the anti Star Trek, which is you know. I have a habit when I go on shows with fame. I came on fame and it was like, 
all we're going to do with shows about that are anti-fame, the stupidity of wanting fame, you know, how empty fame is. And, and, uh, at the beginning to see, you know, the actors didn't want to do them. I was told the first script I wrote the, uh, the, was he the line producer or the unit production manager came up to me and said, we're never going to do this script. And I said, yeah, we are. I bet we are. <laughs> and sure enough, we did. So anyway, that was it. Once, once that ball started rolling, um, you know, Deep Space became this great opportunity to do something I thought would be different and would change the franchise. And of course it didn't change the franchise because Voyager was the same old story and blah, blah, blah. And it took, you know, whatever, how many years until I guess with discovery um, or whatever, they're doing it a little different, I guess. I haven't really watched, but. You haven't seen any like strange new worlds or anything? No, I mean, you know, um, no. <laughs> I have not seen. I haven't seen any. I, I love the casting of Gregory Peck's grandson as Spock. We we joke in here. We call him Hot Spock. There you go. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's 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 uh, it's it's a you know, it, it it was a franchise that I mean, it doesn't even pay to talk about. It. But I'm glad that it's doing well, and I know people who are involved in some of these shows. You know, so I, I, who I like, so, you know, um, I, I wish them all well. We're happy when good people get work in this industry, you know, it really, Absolutely. Makes, it really makes a difference. So I know you've worked with Ron Moore a bit. How did you get pulled into Outlander? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Ron had tried to get me to do, I mean, Ron, I had mentored Ron when oh, he was okay. on, on TNG. That was his first show. And, and, you know, we, we got very close. I remember taking him to, uh, he went with my wife and baby to the, uh, to the date festival. <laughs> um, he fell asleep in the back of the car. It was very cute. <laughs> With baby, baby and, and Ron both asleep in the back of the car. <laughs> the thing I remember about Ron is when we were doing, uh, you know, that third season on TNG was really difficult. We were behind and and it, it was a mess. And, I, and Michael Piller says to me, Look, we need to do this, this, get this show going. So you're going to have to bring the writing staff in over the Thanksgiving break. Oh, I said, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we just can't take the time to, to take any time off. So you're going to have to bring them in. You're going to have to break the story. Michael, by the way, wasn't going to be there because Michael at that point was not, he was in his office rewriting, you know, a lot. And he was already giving me 
the writer's room. So I had to get these guys who were already down in the dumps. A lot of the writers, Melinda and Hans and Ricky, who had been on the show in season two and were now veterans and just, you know, it was a mess. There was a, a, a room, one of the bathrooms, we had the name printed out of every writer who had been on Next Generation and had gotten fired or left. And it filled up the entire three walls of the of the bathroom. Oh, my God. Um, so so they were really That's bad. So chilling. They were That's pissed terrible. off. That's like, how do you write with the sword of Damocles hanging over your head like that? Oh, my God. Um, so I told everyone we're doing it. You know, I had I had uh, something called the Hawksian professional. Well, that's a whole other thing. But, you know, you're only allowed to bitch and moan for a certain amount of time. Then you got to just stop it. You got to be a Hawksian professional, like from a Howard Hawks movie. And you got to do your job. You're identified by how you do your job. So um, I said, we're all coming in, blah, 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 blah. And I said, you'll do this, you'll do this, you do this. And I turned to Ron and I, and I, you know, who's who's like Alice in Wonderland. He, it's all so new to him. And I say, Ron, you'll bring the donuts. And and so we meet uh, the next day and everyone's coming into the office. And Ron comes in with this big bag and he goes here. I go, what the, what the hell is this? He goes, donuts. I said, Donuts. He goes, yeah, you said bring in donuts. I said, oh, God. Okay. <laughs> that was a joke, but okay. Now we have donuts. We can eat donuts. <laughs> so, you know, if, if, uh, so, you know, Ron and I were, were, uh, were really got close for that. And when, when that show ended, the writers would divide it up between who was going to go on voyager and who was going to go on deep space and ron was always going to come to to deep space he had tried to get me on uh when battlestar you know was sold he called me up and and said you know you, you got to do the show with me and i said ron i just can't do another space show i just can't i don't have any interest in space i've never liked space shows or particularly i never read sci-fi space stuff asimov and those guys weren't the guys i read um so i said no um and then but we always said we'd do it again we'd do it again we'd do it again so he called me up and said you know i'm doing outlander and uh you know he goes i know it's not something you'd be imagining doing a romance and you know blah 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 but uh but i said sure and uh I got to spend a lot of time in Scotland, which was uh, which was a lot of fun. Really cool. It's a fantastic show. I had read the book. I want to say I read the book in like the late 90s. Well, the first one uh, anyway. And uh, when my agent was taking out my novel, it was our only comp because there's not a lot of books with a lot of history and a little bit of magic. Uh, and the, the adaptation was done so well. It was so well cast and just so well written. So I just want to commend you. For that what a, what a fantastic show thank you i mean casting in that you know was a lot of fun oh uh, gosh well it's so you know cast. that was one of the things ron isn't involved in the casting it was me and meryl basically who were looking and and it was so funny someone had given me i mean you know there's a lot of those guys i mean duncan i found I, I, the, the casting of Outlander 
was was I was very proud of the casting of Outlander. I really was. Um, but but someone had given me a uh, DVD of a TV show from a couple of years ago about uh, I forget the name of the island, the only island in England that was taken over by the Nazis. That that it's a true story. That the, there was this tiny little island that the Nazis did occupy, which was part of the British Isles, you know. Um, and when you tell that, people think, no, they didn't. Battle of Britain, they know, yeah, yeah, they actually got this little island. So it was a thing about that, you know, it was a, a six-part miniseries or a four-part four miniseries. And Sam was in it. Oh, and wow. so I see this guy who's like seven, you know, he's not the lead, but he's got a pretty good role throughout. And so I watched the show. I said, that guy's pretty good. And, and like two weeks later, we're sitting there looking at these uh, tapes, audition tapes, and there is Sam. Oh my gosh. Like, holy shit. I just saw this guy in a show. I said, this guy is really good. And, and he wound up getting it. You oh. know, we, we did it. He came back. It was, it was, and, and yeah. Did you guys test him and Katrina ball for chemistry or did yeah, it, yeah, yeah. wow, it actually worked. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was great. And, and Tobias, Tobias Mendes. Tobias was the first guy he was the first guy, the first tape we saw. And I thought he was terrific. And I had seen him in Rome and in other things. And oh, I thought he was so great in Rome. As yeah. And so then the weeks are going by and we're having one of these conference calls with all the execs, you know, um, the studio and network and everyone in there saying, well, you know, what about blackjack? What about blackjack? We don't have a blackjack. And they're throwing out all these names of people that, we're never going to get, you know, at, you know, people who we're just not going to get. And there's a long pause, you know, you got 10 people on a conference call, you know, and you just hear that kind of telephone silence, that static kind of thing. And I go, Tobias Menzies. And everyone goes, who? All these people, no one knew. I said, first batch of, of auditions. Tobias Menzies, anyone, anyone, no one remembered him. No one, no one put, and, and so Merrill said, yeah, he's good. Everyone should watch that. And they watched it and he wound up getting it, but it just shows how actors can just fall through the cracks so oh easily. Did he do the audition as for both Frank and Blackjack? Cause he plays both roles in the show. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I believe he did. I can't, you know, can't remember a hundred percent, but I believe he must have. It makes sense that he would have. And I do remember him as, as Frank. So they wouldn't have just given him that they would have given him both. Right. So, so, um, yeah. Well, you know, Tobias was a piece of work, you know, we're doing this, the stuff with, uh, when he's, he's, uh, raping jamie well yeah i was texting richard last night i was like oh my god ira wrote the wentworth prison episode i'm still traumatized i don't know how you wrote it i don't know how they acted it that my, was the most insane hour of television i've ever seen in my life i mean and 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 you know trigger warning for anyone who goes and watches it that that's the most intense rape i've ever seen on tv well we cut out the they cut well we'll talk about that in a second um 
So yeah, I did, it was a two-parter. I was supposed to do the first part, Ron was supposed to do the second part. So I wrote the first part and Ron wasn't turning in the second part. So I said, what's going on? And he said, I, I, I don't want to write the, 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 the rapey stuff. I can't, I, I just don't want to do it. You'll do it and we'll share credit instead of me writing it. We'll both write it together. But so I wound up writing, it appalled my kids. My kids were absolutely, dad, what the hell? I said, hey, I'm just doing what, what they talked about in the book. I'm just making it come to life. But anyway, it was the most depressing set I've ever been on. Because I happened to be there for the, you know, that was one of my tour duties in Scotland. The 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 hair and makeup and costume, which are basically women who 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 are in those departments, they had their own little monitor on the set, and I'd walk would walk by them and they're watching it and they're crying. I'm not kidding. They are crying. I'm going, yeah. what's going on here? It's not real. You know, it's all make believe. You know, he's not hurting Sam, you know, <laughs> not the, you know, and, and yet they were literally weeping. The, the, the crew and the Scottish crew was like no crew I'd ever work with. I mean, they are, they take macho to a ridiculous, <laughs> I mean, I could not freaking believe <laughs> these guys, you good. know, it's like, oh yeah, we're standing in the pouring goddamn rain, having a discussion and there's an overhang five feet away. And it's like, you know, my first time on location, Scott, I actually said, you know, guys, can we just walk five feet over and, and stand under here instead of getting soaking wet and then having to go on the bus, like dripping wet? And they didn't even answer me. They didn't even like it. It didn't even penetrate their skulls because it was such a lame thing to even suggest. But they were walking around that studio so pissed off. When, and they, they, they confirmed me. When is this over? I said, when we're done filming it, when we're going to the next set, which was the set when he's recuperating and, and uh, Murtaugh comes and visits him, the set was built right next, you know, when are we going in there? I said, we're going in there as soon as we're done in here, but we got to get done in here before we could go in there. I mean, that's how TV works. Why is everyone suddenly <laughs> not realizing that we're on a TV show and they think they're watching, you know, some sadomasochistic encounter? Anyway, Sam, we, we, the director would yell cut. Sam would get up and he would be in a spot in his head. You knew not to talk to him. He had to just kind of come out of it, right? It, you could tell it was an intense thing for him. Tobias would hop out of the cot and would stand there wearing whatever little thing he was wearing and start telling jokes. He was like total sociopath. I mean, it's like, it's like, dude, does this bother you at all? What are you talking about? It's like, well, don't you get the vibe of this place? People are like really uncomfortable. So why? It's acting. It's nothing. It's like, you know, it's all make-believe, blah, 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 blah. That's incredible. It's really funny to see. He just did not, he literally could go from, you know, hurting Sam to like, you know, getting a cookie and sitting just standing there chomping on a cookie like nothing had happened so that's amazing that's a skill there's something enlightened about that i i joke my business card should say everything but acting because i don't think that i ever <laughs> i don't think i ever could uh it's 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 a it's 
it's when it's done well it's it's an, it's amazing to see you know uh it's not always done well and and you know especially in in television you know at times you know you like i said you know you're shooting in toronto you're shooting in vancouver and yes they have a good talent pool for season one but you know after season one if you're still up there in season two you've used up a lot of the 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 best of the best i'm talking about the smaller roles which are also important you know it's it's, it's sometimes you get these these small one scene roles i hate when people call them day players i think that's the most degrading um but you know so you get get these small roles you need you need people who can who can who can sell them and that becomes difficult but when it's done well when it, when you have someone who can really deliver it's an amazing thing to watch even to watch on set live just you know suddenly you believe you're watching and you know it's there's cameras and lights and people you know at the craft services eating and and yet you're buying it you're buying the scene in front of you I'd love to talk to you more about the actual your process around adaptation um as working for example on Outlander I know you brought Richard with you uh, early on dragged him all the way to Scotland um how did you go about working on that adaptation what was your process like well you know um the the garrison commander which was the first episode i wrote was you know they kept hitting us with the only note that the studio network kept giving us was you have to follow the book you have to follow the book you have to follow the book and that was because the book had millions of fans already yeah. that way yeah. yeah yeah but i didn't want to follow you know right as soon as you say that i'm going to get annoyed <laughs> um and um so we had come up with this idea based on um there's no one to answer the phone so it's going to just ring um based on what was i think half a page or a page in the book that that it, you know she did have an encounter with blackjack but the whole episode had to be created out of whole cloth and that's what i liked right um but I wasn't going to write that episode. I was going to write the third episode. Yep. Um, yeah, I've read so, the pilot too. It's really fantastic. Ron Moore's yeah. on the pilot was great. So what happened was the guy who was Matt, who was going to write episode six, didn't want to write it because it was a two-hander. It was basically a play. It was two people locked in a room or in a room and not for the whole show but for a big part of the show he didn't want to do it so ron came to me and said I, I i need you to switch you'll knock it out of the park you'll you'll you know it's it's a play you'll write a play hmm. um so i said okay uh you know what do i care uh but what i liked about it because the, the, the was the initial idea was that it wasn't from it, it there was lots of room to create you know you didn't have to just follow the book uh, slavishly, which uh, I found more entertaining as a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, but so, you know, in terms of adaptation, 
with a book like that, with so many fans, the, the major thing is, and to me, the only thing is, is you have to keep the characters uh, recognizable. And the characters have to do, even if they're doing something not in the book, the audience has to believe that that's the thing they were going to do. But one of the big arguments we had in season one was, after the first five episodes were written, I said to Ron that something was missing, that it, it was too, um, not self-important, but the love story, it was all so serious and we needed some knucklehead humor. So uh, Angus, uh, who was the other guy? The two, the two guys, Stephen Walters. Um, so I said, we, we should do that. We should come up with two guys who were like two real, you know, Highlanders, you know, sweaty, you know, guys um, who can, we could have some fun with. And again, I was told, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. They're not in the book. They're just names in the book. They don't have a storyline. And I said to Ron, I really think we should do it. He said, well, write a couple of scenes and we'll throw them in to these first episodes and we'll see how it goes. And then at the end of season one, when we had some kind of thing downtown at some theater with Diana there, Gabaldon, Gabaldon? Mm -hmm. uh, she was there on stage and they asked her what her favorite thing was of season one. And she said it was Angus. And I can't believe I can't remember the other character's name now, but what the hell? He, she goes, that was, that was the most fun, having these two guys who weren't in my book really like, <laughs> brought in all this humor. So it was like, there you go, you know? Yeah, it was it it was a little bit of Shakespearean humor, uh, having them in there brought in some levity to to some of the depth and um, gosh, you know, turmoil, though, that was in the those episodes in, in season one. Yeah, I mean, season, you know. What's amazing about that show is, you know, a love story is is, you know. It's a beautiful thing to write and it and it keeps the viewer involved, but once that love story becomes, you know, consummated and becomes a marriage, usually it's like, okay, all the fun is gone because it's all about that initial, but the show was able to, but by the end of season two, all the characters I like, or most of the characters I like were dead and I killed a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> I wound up killing most of them, you know? Um, so, you know, the show was changing quite a bit and, uh, there were a lot of things going on. And plus I wanted to produce this indie film mm -hmm. that I had been offered. And so mm -hmm. that was it. And that was it. I got a weird technical question for you, which was, it seemed like, well, at least as a viewer, that audio, that a uh, season one was broken into like two parts. What, what was the thought and uh, reasoning behind that? Cause I have never seen that done before. Um, it was a, a big, because Season one was going to be six, turned out it was going to be too big. It's all about money. It's all about right. what figures the <laughs> network comes up with. 
where the money is going to be spent in what quarter in what year um and i believe i think the years with 10 episodes if i'm not anyway 16 was too much 16 was going to be too much too much expense so they had to break it up we were kind of pissed to be honest yeah. you know i what i tell people and and this is where you guys should be listening because this is what we're facing now with the writers guild why i think there's going to be a strike um is that i did 26 episodes of outlander 26 episodes and i was on that show for three count them three calendar years to do 26 episodes that is appalling it's also not great financially if you think about it because you get paid by the episode so you're going from getting paid 26 episodes in 10 months to getting paid 26 episodes three years so and this is what's happening more and more and it's got to stop and um you know there were times that uh you know i came into the episode i came into the office every day just about i mean not everyone did but they're paying me so i'm coming into the office uh when you say the office was that the writer's room in la yeah yeah i mean when you're there in scotland i mean it was it was exhausting <laughs> it was exhausting i'm I'm serious i mean i'd sleep on saturday till 4 p.m because i'd be out i'd come home i'd have you have to wear rubber pants because the mud it, it was it, it it was it was an interesting experience plus that i couldn't go out soccer in in uh glasgow if the teams were playing you know they're i forget the teams but one of them is green and one of them is blue so because of my beard literally the the crew would tell me you can't leave your house until after the crowd leaves after the game because people will beat the shit out of you thinking that you're representing the team you know and if the greens see you they're gonna they're gonna kick your ass so nice. literally yeah 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 it was it was which was fine because then i could just sleep and watch goofy scottish tv or english tv um but uh yeah so that was that was that was not something we wanted to do eight you know episodes and then another, it just made the process even even longer but uh that's how it went down yeah thanks for that answer because it was confusing seeing that happen and then understanding the structure behind it a little bit better you know definitely makes sense and I, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and it is just wild watching the cost of living soar. And I don't know how a lot of these writers are even making a living to live in Los Angeles now. It's just madness. And there, I think you're right. And there really needs to be a lot more consideration given to the writers and writer salaries, uh, especially right now and with inflation, cost of living, everything else. And then these many rooms, these, these, the stream many rooms yeah. where you get paid uh uh i wouldn't say scale but but you get paid uh you know not necessarily what you would make 
once the show allegedly goes, but you work there for 10 weeks, you help create the show, and then there's no guarantee that they're going to hire you, you know, to actually be on staff on the show. So basically, especially lower echelons, I'm basically talking about lower echelon writers. Um, so that that also is something that has to be dealt with. Um, the 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 you know, I don't know how people break into the business because I, I guess I do know. I mean, they become assistants. That's how people, you know, and hope someone will throw you a script. I mean, when I, I started out, they still had freelance which I hated, by the way, and was not for me. But that's how I got my first couple of gigs was was freelancing. I mean, I, I hated it. And, and, you know, if I hadn't lucked on to, to, to fame, which came about in a whole different way, um, I don't know what would have happened. But but it's it's tougher and tougher. Um, I think for newer writers today, and uh, something has to be done about it. And it's going to, the studios and the networks aren't going to do it out of the goodness of their hearts. And it's going to take a combined effort of, of the guild to, uh, to try to make some changes. And it's, it's been a long time coming because we've let it get so out of hand. I hear that. Ira, my last question for you today is what uh, movies do you recommend that every writer see? That's that's tough. I know it's big. But... <laughs> that, that's tough. Um, I mean, I think... Um, I mean, it's hard, you know, if you had asked me this 10 years ago, I would have said probably something else. But, you know, I watch, uh, you know, I watch a lot of uh, foreign films. You know, I want to say watch Iranian films. This, this Iran has had some fantastic directors uh, in the last couple of decades. Um, no matter how they treat them. Um, well, it's tragic, the Iranian filmmaker situation now. I know, but I just heard that uh, Panahi, he's doing another film. I don't know how. He's still, I think, uh, allegedly under has arrest again, but somehow he gets to make these movies. It's very odd. Um, you know, uh, that's that's a tough question because a lot of the things I'm going to say, you know, I mean, the movie that changed my life, you know, that literally changed my life, but that's not going to help any of you uh, was The Wild Bunch, the Sam Peckinpah. I mean, The Wild Bunch was the movie that made me real. Also, I was young when I saw it and I it, it, it made me realize that a movie is not about plot and that there's a lot going on beyond, you know, 
what a synopsis can tell you about a movie. Um, I think that, you know, if if you haven't seen, if you haven't watched the films of John Ford, Orson Welles, Jean Renoir, um, you know, Well, uh, I mean, all, you know, the great filmmakers, the great filmmakers for a reason and how they tell stories, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound like old Martin Scorsese, but if you're only watching, you know, Marvel Universe movies and all these big blockbusters, look, when... Growing up, you know, the people who were my absolute heroes, the writers who were my heroes, I'm talking about from the time, like, I was 15, 14, 15, were Beckett and Faulkner and Celine and, and, you know, people like that. So, you know, if you aspire to that, you're always going to be a failure in your own mind, which I think is very good, by the way, because what you're shooting for is something you can achieve. But that's what you're trying to achieve. So you're not going to settle for shit, you know, or hopefully you won't. But if you're looking at, you know, Iron Man 7 and you go, well, I can do that. I can do that better then that's what you're going to do. You know, if Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the, you know, it was weird because in the 90s, there was a shift from everyone liking, in the writer's room, if you talked about things that inspired you, it was always movies. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, it changed to TV. You know, it was like this TV show and it was like, this is so weird, you know, TV. TV is, is, you know, okay, but it is an art. And, and then TV, you know, obviously, you know, the golden age, blah, 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 Sopranos, blah, 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 yada, yada. Um, but, I, you know, I don't watch, uh, you know, I mean, if you ask me what the best shows on TV are, it was Reservation Dogs, Black Jesus, The Venture Brothers. Um, what else stuff like that is what i would say to watch rather than you know i mean you, you you just you have to challenge yourself you know you have to you know you have to have goals that are unachievable um to keep going and keep trying to get better Iris Stephen Beer, you've been an awesome special guest today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www. 
entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you. Thank you.